Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview on 91.5 FM KSUA, and thanks for listening. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, everyone out there that's listening, thank you once again for joining us on Join the Conversation, 91.5 KSUA, our college radio station here in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, we have a very special guest with us today. We have State Senator Jesse Cahill. Keel, just, like just like the bottom of your boat. All right, Jesse Keel and uh, uh, Senator Keel represents Senate District Q, which is Juno, Festivus, um, in the general area. So we have him on the show, and we're going to be talking uh, budget. We're going to be talking uh, borough and assembly politics. We're we're going to get uh, we're going to get into the weeds on this. So thank you, Senator, for coming on the show. Hey, it is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As a preliminary issue, uh, the little community at the uh, western edge of my district is Gustavus, because um, uh, you know we Alaskans in pronunciation, right? It's not Valdez; it's Valdez. Um, so yeah, I uh, I get to represent the capital city of Juneau. Uh, that's the majority of my uh, my district by population. Um, and then uh, if you were to put your, uh, well, I guess this is, this is audio, so I can't do the visual thing, but uh, if you put your elbow on Juno and your fingertips on Gustavus there at the mouth of Glacier Bay um, and sweep your, your hand up and to your right, you're gonna catch the excursion inlet cannery where there's a night watchman um, and then communities of Haines and Cluckwan. Uh, you'll hit Skagway, and then if you keep going, you're in Canada, and I don't worry too much about those guys. So, um, yeah, that's my that's my little corner of the state. I was born and raised in Anchorage, but uh, I went to college outside and immediately upgraded, came to Southeast. So, I, uh, you know, being Fairbanks-based, um, I do love the interior and all, but I will be in Juneau in a month, and we are going out to the Tidelands Institute. And that oh, is- uh, at the Hobbit Hole. At the Hobbit Hole, yes, and uh, so I, I'm thoroughly looking forward to that. Um, apparently, we're going kayaking with humpback whales. We're going to snorkel with orcas. I'm just wondering, have you snorkeled with orcas yet today? No, uh, well, not today. <laughs> that's uh, that's dry suit snorkeling. That's uh, the the water is no warmer here than the Chena River at breakup. So, uh, you know, and enjoy that. 
Certainly. Well, sir, uh, you have a, a long and distinguished career in politics. You were a legislative staffer for 18 years. Um, you spent seven years on the Juneau Assembly, which is kind of like the county government system in the lower 48 on the outside. Um, just speak to that a little bit, because uh, I find the borough system fascinating, uh, just as someone that grew up in California, and we have counties down here is the it's an assembly and a county government and a borough all in one i mean that just sounds super fun what was going on there for seven years yeah so you're um the maybe the better way to think about it a, a borough is very very similar to a county in terms of levels of government and organization um but in alaska very large land masses relatively small populations and so in a lot of places um folks have found it uh wise and found it efficient to unify that borough, that count, equivalent to a county level outside with their city. So uh, the biggest example in Alaska is the municipality of Anchorage. They are a unified home rule city and borough, right? It's just Anchorage. Girdwood isn't a separate city in there. Eagle River isn't a separate city in there, it's one. We did the same thing in Juneau back in 1971 before I was born, um, just, just so we get the right uh, take on who we is there. Um, it, you're, it a bicentennial, to, you're a bicentennial baby. You're seven I years. am a bicentennial baby. You're the, you the, the quarter with the drummer on it. I get it. I, I have a little stash of those tucked away at home. Uh, I, I pull them out anytime I get one in the chain. It's getting rarer and rarer. Senator, so, I was um, born in 76 also. Yes, I totally get it. Uh, it's whatever America is turning minus 200. And yet somehow you have a lot more hair than I do. I'm really jealous. Um, just, just to well, return I, I try, it. I, yeah, I'm trying to get my hair longer than uh, your colleague Begich. I'm trying to uh, your state senator uh, friend. Uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need to to play some pretty mean guitar to to rival Tom. The ponytail comes with that, as I understand it. Anyway, just to, to wrap that earlier thought, um, so we've got a unified city and borough of Juneau. So there used to be the city of Juneau, the city of Douglas, the greater Juneau borough, um, and those just unified up into one. And you see that um, throughout Southeast. It happens at a couple of other places around the state. Um, so, you know, Wrangell is a, is a unified city and borough. Sit, uh, Sitka is CBS, the city and borough of Sitka. Um, municipality of Skagway, same as same deal, uh, different name, as opposed to Fairbanks, where you have the Fairbanks North Star Borough, you have the city of Fairbanks, you have the city of North Pole. Likewise, Ketchikan, where you have the Ketchikan Gateway Borough, and you have the city of Ketchikan right within it. Also, uh, Saxman, which is uh, a village. So um, it's it's a couple different approaches to how you do your local government, but the basic notion is how many levels do you want or need? How different are the people within different areas of your local local uh, piece of government there? Do you need, do you want to elect separate people and do separate work? Um, you know, in the Matsu, right, they might be the biggest example. The Matsu borough um, has school powers, but, but not police powers. Um, now, the city of Palmer, they have police powers. The city of Wasilla, city of Houston, but not Talkeetan, um, not Sutton. So, uh, you know, they, they have decided not to unify, uh, which of course leads to some other things because they've got so much population, just about all their police protection is provided by the state troopers at no local cost or expense. Whereas here in Juneau, we, 
we got to pay for JPD to patrol every inch of highway we've got. Um, there is only a major crime, drug crimes unit here and some wildlife troopers. They don't, they don't patrol the streets. They don't answer calls. No kidding. So, it, so kind of like down here in California, I, I'm based out of LA. But, but I won't hold that against you. San Francisco is the city and the county combined. There you go. So it's similar to that where all of the services come from one legislative jurisdiction. That's right. Yeah. So then with you on the Juno Assembly, how many other elected officials were there? Like, what did you guys total? Sure. So nine total on the assembly. That includes the mayor. Um, and Juno has a strong manager, weak mayor form of government. So the mayor chairs the assembly, sets the agenda. Um, but does not hire and fire staff, does not have a veto. Does the mayor um, have a separate election or that you appoint the mayor with the seven that are there? Mayor is independently elected to her seat um, okay. as the mayor, as the mayor's seat. Um, but you're, you're exactly right to contrast that. We've got lots of places in Alaska with a, an even weaker mayor. The mayor is elected from uh, among the assembly members by the assembly or, or the city council in some cases. Um, so lots of different ways to do it. You know, that's one of the beauties of local control is that local folks can say, you know, the structure of government's going to work best for us. We want it this way in our town. It matches our values. It matches the way we want work to get done. So, sir, you uh, in the early 90s, you did the Ted Stevens internship. You were out in D.C. Um, you interned uh, with Governor Tony Knowles. Um, at what point, like when you were growing up, when did it dawn on you that you care about government a little bit more than everybody else? Like, were you just watching C-SPAN as a six-year-old? And then when they came out with C-SPAN 2 in 86, you're like, this is so fantastic. I get to watch the Senate now too. I mean, when did it dawn on you that you might be kind of government nerdy? Uh, well, now nerdy, I've always been. Government nerdy, really, really for the most part, that was in... Um, in DC working for uh, Stevens. I, you know, I, again, I was, I've always been uh, a nerd. So I, I, you know, volunteered on a couple of campaigns, uh, you know, hanging door knockers on people's not doorknobs and whatnot in high school, but that wasn't the, the focus. That wasn't the passion. Um, I really thought I was going to law school. I thought criminal law, uh, the, the daydream was, Ooh, maybe someday I'll be a judge, you know, um, and, and I had a, uh, a mentor, um, very much outside of academic endeavors, uh, elsewhere in life, um, who was an attorney, and she, her advice to me was write. Write, 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 work on your writing, um, and then when you think your writing is great, find someone who thinks it's not and make it better. Um, and, and combine that effort um, with... Uh, a friend of mine uh, from growing up who uh, had interned for Ted Stevens. So Ted Stevens, let me just back up a second, was our U.S. Senator, right, for a very, very long time. And um, <clears throat> he had actually two intern programs. He had one that was the summer you graduated from high school, come to the Capitol for four weeks. Someone will drive you around. You'll do a little filing and work around the office, this and that but mostly see the nation's capital kind of thing. No idea how he paid for it, couldn't tell you. Um, he also, but he'd do two, two classes of those at, I don't know, eight or 10 or 11 uh, per. But then all summer long, he had college students who were interns in his office. You worked under one of his legislative correspondents. 
you did issue work, the letters would come in, you'd research what it was, you'd make sure that they got an answer prepped, you know, through staff up to the senator's desk. Um, and, and I did that. And I got to tell you, best internship in the entirety of Capitol Hill, Washington, DC, which I don't know if you know, just floods with interns, every NGO, every congressional office wants interns all summer long. Um, He was the incoming chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, one of the most senior members of the United States Senate. And he would put an hour, hour and a half in his calendar every single week to just sit down with the interns. And he told you, you know, he'd say uh, he had a couple of rules, right? Uh, Back when long distance was a separate charge, the office had a watts line. So he'd say, call your parents, call them from the office. Uh, It won't cost the taxpayer a nickel, but I really don't want them calling me to find out if you're still alive. Ted could be grumpy sometimes. He was he was lovable anyway. Um, he, He would also warn you about, you know, big city. You may be from Anchorage, but let me tell you, you're not from a big city like this. Stay safe or don't go out. The usual spiel. But the other thing he said was. When we come to these weekly meetings, come in here with questions. Come in here to tell me I'm doing it wrong. Come in here and tell me I'm, I'm an idiot and I did it wrong. Something. But don't sit here and wait for me to talk or we'll all be damn bored. Um, and, and he meant it. And literally, uh, the one time we ran out of questions, we, we regretted it and never did it again. But, you know, that summer, the Base Realignment and Closure Commission, the BRAC, this is sort of post-Cold War, was closing Fort Greeley or trying to, and we had an intern, a college intern from Delta Junction, right? And, and we got into it. That was the summer that the federal welfare reform bill passed and went to President Clinton, right? And that, as you'll recall, that was, there was a lot of back and forth. That, didn't, that took more than one try. That was when uh, Bob Dole resigned as majority leader to go run against Bill Clinton in the reelect. Um, and we were gearing up for a Magnuson-Stevens Re, uh, Fisheries Act reauthorization right? Which, of course, he's the Stevens in Magnuson Stevens Fisheries Act. Uh, so he cared a very great deal. And with Alaska's quantity of coastline and volume and value of seafood, you can understand that. So, I mean, just huge issues, fascinating stuff. And it just set the hook on public policy for me. Um, and, and the notion of law school started to drop away pretty fast. Um, and in fact, it, it never happened. Um, because I, I went back to school for my, uh, let me think, my junior year. Um, and, and I just knew two things. I wanted to learn more about this. And I was not going back to D.C. Not, not a cultural match for me. Love the museums, the art, the whole the history, the whole thing. I don't, me and D.C., we're not the same. Well, Senator, that's a, that is a great story. I actually uh, worked in Washington, D.C. for a, congressman and uh, was a legislative correspondent and was in charge of the intern program. So uh, everything you said to me was uh, fascinating. Did you give uh, capital tours? Were you giving tours also? Just a little bit. Um, uh, Mostly he had, uh, Senator Stevens had a couple of senior staff who uh, gave a lot of them. I gave a few. Um, I, you know, I tagged along with her and did that, but mostly for uh, folks I knew who'd come in. What legislative issues were you working on? Like you guys were answering letters. Do you remember what uh, legislative issues they had you kind of earmarked for? Oh, uh, probably the local Anchorage kind of area stuff from where you were from. 
No, there were plenty of anchorageites uh, in the in the office, and he didn't focus the the his LCs regionally. He did focus them by issues. Uh, lots of human services, human affairs kind of stuff. Um, so I worked under George Lowe, who, by the way, some years later uh, was, became the center's chief of staff, um, and uh, and then um, the. LA who legislative assistant um, whose whose name last name escapes me uh, for which I apologize to Liz because that's going to kill me um, I'm going to sit bolt upright at two in the morning and go oh that's um, what it was yes but Liz, uh, Liz Taylor. <laughs> but you know just uh, really sharp folks uh, really tremendously uh, uh, well versed with a lot of history and knowledge um, you know, I didn't have a political party then. Um, and, and actually after that summer, interning in Senator Stevens' office, um, I joined the other party. I, I registered as a Democrat. I'd been a nonpartisan, I registered as a Democrat, um, realized that that was where my opinions lined up more often than uh, with the R's. Um, but, you know, just tremendous respect for the work that everyone did in that office and how the they approached it, even when they were wrong. Yes. So uh, you, you certainly uh, are on the ball and on top of things. Uh, I remember emailing you about a project I was working on about the Winter Olympics, and you were the first legislator to get back to me um, like within 12 hours. But uh, I want to dive into uh, your work on the budget and kind of the budget process, because um, I know you know. Now, uh, Last year, the governor called you guys into special session like three or four times. What is the deal? Is it just that there is that 90 days is not enough, that 120 days is not enough? I mean, the, the weird but cool thing about the Alaska legislature is it's like semi-professional. Like a, a lot of you guys have a, you know, a, a separate job, but then you spend, I mean, it's a, 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 a huge time commitment, obviously, to be a senator. What, why is the budgetary process, why does it hit so many speed bumps? Do you guys just not have enough time to sit in committee and hash it out? Two, two, two things. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, the, the three P's of getting anything done in a legislature, right? Policy, politics, personalities. Um, and, and, uh, woe betide the the elected official who ignores one um so so the policy issue <clears throat> that has hung us up and hung us up hard is the permanent fund dividend um and i i would wager that you have spent a lot of time with your previous guests talking about the pfd um so you know the the nickel version from my perspective is back when oil money was coming in faster than all the best and all the worst politicians that uh, we had in office could figure out how to spend it um folks said, you know, uh, oil runs out. Uh, oil runs out everywhere it's ever been developed. Uh, maybe we should do something to turn these oil wells into uh, permanent money wells. And a little sliver of the money, uh, Alaskans passed a constitutional amendment to put a little sliver of that money uh, into a constitutionally protected fund, the permanent fund, the corpus of which could never be spent, but the earnings of which go to the general fund. Uh, now, almost immediately, uh, all the best and all the worst politicians, Alaskan sent uh, subsequently said, ooh, I've got an idea to spend more than we have been. And, and the folks with the vision who had set this up said, whoa, oil money is still coming in over the gunnels too early. Um, 
So they came up with an idea to, to protect that revenue stream until it was truly needed. They said, we're gonna split it uh, with every single Alaskan. And there were some, some variations on how that check would be put together. But again, earnings, earnings of that, that fund uh, out to every uh, permanent resident of Alaska. Um, you have to declare your intent to remain. Um, and, and that check in many ways, in many parts of the state has become the tail that wags the dog. Um, it has become rather than Alaskan politics. Yeah, yeah, uh, too, too successful. Uh, but but in the, the short version of a very long story um, is, that, uh, is that for some people, that check is the most important thing there is. It's more important than troopers, more important than schools, more important than courts and prisons and, and healthcare and everything else a state government does. Um, and that, by the way, the voters actually do want us to do, um, but they want their full PFD, they want the great big check. Um, and, and so the divide between um, the people who support the big check and representing their constituents, right? There are a lot of Alaskans who believe that's key. Uh, and, and the folks who say it is now time, well, production is down uh, until very recently, well, prices had settled at a major, moderate low level. Um, it, it is time to use a piece of the earnings, not even all, along with a check, but smaller, um, to provide services and a moderate uh, dividend. Um, <clears throat> that That's the fight, right? So that, where, where that, is, that locks uh, us up year after year. But the, the, I mean, if you look at the history of it, if you go like into the academic world, you can say that in 76, Governor Jay Hammond uh, traded away the state income tax and the state sales tax to get this deal through. Here comes 1982. Everyone gets a $1,100 check, and from there, it, it you know there's generations that that rely on it. But if you go back, it is the fact that Alaska is the least taxed state in America, it, even less than DC. They bring in the District of Columbia. Alaska is number 51. There's no state sales tax. There's no state income tax. I mean, you would be committing political suicide if you said, hey, read my lips, new taxes. But isn't that really the issue? Or you can say that as a Democrat. Are you safe enough to say that? I have introduced an income tax bill. <laughs> and that was well received. Yes, I, I ran on it. I was elected. That's fantastic. And I've introduced it. Now, has it passed? It has not. Um, but, but did it get out of committee? There's no question that we're going to need um, some new recurring revenue. And by the way, just just you got to you got to realize what we're doing in Alaska right now, because as you said, there is no broad based tax, right? There's not even a statewide property tax except on oil and gas property, right? And and that's been a great ride my whole life. There is a picture. Uh, from Alaska Magazine from 1977, a giant, giant community picnic in Valdez called the Oils Inn Party. And somewhere in that picture is a, a little uh, guy with a, a very bad mustache and goatee and a lovely short lady. Uh, and they have a little toe-headed girl, about two, three years old, and a fat baby in their arms wearing diapers, who's me, right? And that oil has paid all the bills, all the bills until basically now. And here's the weird thing that does. Here's the distortion that gives us. Economic growth is bad for the state budget. 
Now that doesn't make any sense. You want to talk about perverse incentives and having it upside down. If you created a tech company in the downtown Fairbanks tomorrow and you employed a hundred people, the city of Fairbanks, the Fairbanks North Star Borough would be thrilled, right? That's jobs. Those people are gonna, you know, buy houses or, or rent apartments and there'll be property tax either directly or indirectly within the city sales tax, right? And so when the time comes to pay about a little less than half the cost of educating some of those kids, of those workers, the Fairbanks North Star Borough has property tax money to pay its share. And when the time comes for the police car to protect somebody, to roll, respond to a phone call, there's some sales tax revenue in the city of Fairbanks coffers from those workers and all their economic activity. This is how governments provide the services people want. It's a little peg to the economy. And it's in their interest to make sure there is economic growth. A tech company, there's no, there's no uh, smokestack emissions, no water pollution. It's great, everybody loves it, right? Now look at the state of Alaska. Unless you have the stupidest accountant ever to earn a CPA, they didn't make your tech company a type C corp like, uh, like Alaska Airlines or some publicly traded company, right? They're the only ones who pay a state corporate income tax. C-Corps, right? So that's banks, airplanes, and publicly traded companies. There might be an exception somewhere I'm not coming up with. But your tech company is paying squat to the state of Alaska. So you get in a contract dispute and you got to go to court. There's no state revenue to pay for that. Those employees' kids go to school in the state, pays a little more than half, almost 60% of what it costs. There's no revenue to pay for that. A hundred new jobs in Fairbanks is bad for the state budget. That's dumb. We should want our people to have jobs. Now, we're politicians, right? So we have some incentive to make it happen. But the economics is perverse. It's upside down. They call it the Alaska disconnect um, when you read the economic literature. And it's got to end someday. It's going to end someday. Um, <laughs> but, but here we sit fighting about how big the check's going to be this year and whether we're going to continue to cut you know, behavioral health grants for poor people who struggle with mental health issues. Uh, and then we argue, oh my God, crime is bad. Let's uh, spend you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars a year to lock up the mentally ill, which is both inhumane and fiscally stupid. Also, ultimately doesn't reduce crime. This is where we're thinking when the economy doesn't matter to the budget. So I want to loop all the way back to the question you asked me. We fight like crazy about that PFD. Um, and when there's enough cash, you can pass a budget with a simple majority. But remember, the whole reason we're going after a piece of the earnings from the permanent fund for what they were originally intended for, some state services, is because there's not enough cash around. Except right now, the price of oil is high. It's a little bit of blood money from the war in Ukraine. Um, so, so you have to tap savings every year, basically from 2016 until this year. Well, that takes a supermajority, right? And so if you're closely split on that PFD question, the folks who want the big check say, you can't tap savings unless I can deliver that giant check. Now, so isn't I mentioned it just 25%, isn't it a percentage of market value? It's always set at 25% or the argument is that next 25% that the governor wants to get in for, let's say, his reelection. <laughs> we'll talk about the governor next. Um, so uh, I don't know how much detail you want to get into. There's a historic formula from the 1980s, right? And that says take the lagging five-year earnings of realized income, which is a accounting term, and then we define it statutorily. Take 21% of that five-year number. So basically, 
you know, you, you got about half of what your realized earnings are, and that's the PFD check, right? That's what comes out. Um, and, and what we did in 2016, 2017, I can't remember the exact year, was we said, listen, we ought to manage this instead of the corpus of the fund, which can never be touched, and the earnings reserve, which is where the dividends come out of. Um, we ought to manage this like one whole endowment fund and just say, take the total value and never spend more than 5% of the lagging five-year average, first five of the previous six fiscal years. And that's a sustainable draw. Endowments use that, et cetera. Um, and as long as we don't go above that, the market will have boom years, it'll have bust years, the fund will grow a lot, it'll grow a tiny bit or even lose some over the long run average, we will maintain or slightly grow the value of that fund and pass it on to our kids, pass it on to our grandkids, it will be permanent in its value. But the fight is always over the PFD then. I mean, ah, so that old account. formula, that old formula, when the, when the permanent fund corporation, which manages all the investments, you know, the formula was written, it was in bonds and money markets, right? You knew what realized earnings were. There was a coupon on the bond and the interest payment on the money market, done and dusted, easy, right? Well, over the years, we and have come to invest it like a modern endowment fund. So um, you have some big holdings sometimes. Something grows colossally. It's time to rebalance. You're going to shift out. So here's an example. 0809 markets crash. Permanent fund corporation gets together with a couple of other great big money sources. Some would call them venture capitalists. Some would call them vulture capitalists. They buy 24,000 foreclosed homes across the country. I, I, that's a rough number. Right? They got a three-party, four-party joint venture. They do this little fix-up where they're needed. They rent them out. They're making money like topsy. They're making money gangbusters. And then the real estate markets come back. The value of the permanent funds third or a quarter of this, this glob of homes skyrockets plus rent. It's just going through the... And they look at the, perm, the real estate portfolio and they go, you know what? We've got too much real estate right now. Now we could sell this office building in Manhattan. We could sell this mall in Virginia, DC. We could sell, they got all these things, right? But we got to do something. They decide to sell the, their interest in this block of homes and the realized gains on that are so huge. They would have caused an extra roughly billion dollars to go out in PFD checks in a single year blow the formula just way out of whack. Now the value of the total fund didn't skyrocket. The price of the check did, if you use the old formula, right? It is out of whack. It's not appropriate that in 1980s formula for the way the fund is invested today. And it's gonna lead to these, if we had to use it, it would lead to these spikes and valleys in the PFD check. All right, I think we've beaten that one absolutely to death, unless you want to get further into the weeds and depths of, of investment theory. So you, I, I, I didn't finish answering your question about why so many special sessions. Personalities was the last of the three Ps. Mm. Our current governor- um, He's very tall. <laughs> he's proud of telling people that. So I grew up with a buddy who was the same height. I am, I am unimpressed, right? I'm a vice great guy, and the governor's not an evil soul, but I, I'm not impressed by height. Sorry. Um, the the our current governor um, sometimes brings unique and novel readings of law and constitution, and decrees them to be so by virtue of his uh, the power vested in his veto pen, or 
just the power of his office. And, and I gotta say, right, when you read Alaska's constitution, lay it down next to any other constitution in the 50 states, we probably have the strongest executive, right? It's, it's, we could go into detail about that. So he is rereading, he's changing, he's upsetting the apple cart on all kinds of things that are settled. And the best example I can give you is from this last year when he said, hey, the constitution says bills take effect 90 days after they're signed or they become law without signature. And um, if you want to pass a different effective date, you need two thirds of both the House and the Senate to vote for that different effective date. Now with a budget, usually that's an immediate effective date because we try to get out of here mid-May or, or, uh, or mid-June if there's a special session and our fiscal year starts on July 1. But sometimes we get in fights and arguments. And so we have retroactivity clauses. They say, if this passes and becomes effective after the fiscal year starts, it, it's retroactive to the start of the fiscal year. So don't do a government shutdown, right? We'll, we'll get a budget passed and you can continue to provide services to Alaskans, right? You still need to protect kids when somebody calls and says there's bruises on his face, right? Don't, the shutdown stuff, and it's not appropriate. Well, the governor came in. Now, and there's been, by the way, an Alaska Supreme Court case on this. The Alaska Supreme Court back in the 80s said a retroactivity provision is not the same as an effective date. Settled law, right? Boom, done. Governor came in and said, if you believe that, you can't read. I don't know what he thought about those Supreme Court uh, justices in the past, but that gave the minority cadre, and very narrowly a minority cadre, who want the giant checks, another hammer, right? Give us the big PFD check, money or in the bank or no, or we won't pass the effective dates. Now, was he like that? He was a state senator and Mike Shower now sits in his seat. Was he like that in the Correct. state Senate or did he become inebriated with power uh, once he became governor? Um, hey, I, uh, so Senator Shower, uh, excuse me, when, uh, when uh, Governor Dunleavy was Senator Dunleavy, he served five years, all of them in the Senate Majority Caucus. Um, and I don't believe in those like five years he- uh, yeah, from Osella. Yeah. I don't believe in those five years that he passed a bill with his name on it. I do remember him putting provisions I don't like um, into somebody else's bill once. Um, Might have happened more than once. I was a staffer in those days, uh, but that's that's my memory. He, um, we have different approaches. He and I. Uh, you can you can hear the the conflict here uh, in in how we go after the world. Um, here's the interesting thing about that effective date thing. I I went back and I thought just just a minute, can't read. So I looked at the budgets he had proposed when he gave them to us. Guess what they had in them? Retroactivity clauses that took a, that kicked in if the effective date was after July 1. And I thought, oh, okay, he's changed his mind. So we're into the umpteenth special session. And of course, you have to reintroduce your bills in a special session, unless you have a supermajority to pick them up where they lie. And our problem was we didn't have a supermajority for anything. So the governor reintroduced brand new budget bills for the new special session after he'd made this declaration. Guess what they had in them? Retroactivity clauses in case they didn't take effect in time. So I don't know who he was, was shooting at, um, <laughs> but- Well, maybe, but I, maybe you, get better, you get better at splitting hairs. Um, the, the higher offices you achieve, um, you know, they, it comes with like a little workbook that's in the desk that says you are now allowed to do this. So uh, Senator, I do wanna talk since we were uh, knee deep in legislation in the 70s. Um, I saw you went to Whitman College. You got your, uh, your bachelor's in politics and theater, um, which is a great combination. 
uh, certainly. Um, but you did your honors thesis on uh, Indian country in Alaska, its existence and implications. Um, I'm just wondering, just, I mean, the, uh, that legislation, the uh, Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, it comes up more than you can even imagine at UAF. Um, that legislation and uh, the designation of Indian country, federal land, in Alaska, there's only one uh, actual Indian country right down there in the Southeast, right? And the rest of it is everything that went through um, the Native Claims Settlement Act. Is that right? So yeah, there's one reservation. It is, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the Annette Islands Reservation in Metlakatla, which is just about as far south as you can get still being Alaska. At the time ANCSA passed, there were others, right? And, and they had a call to make and everybody except Metlakatla um, elected to go with the ANCSA model. My, um, so first thing to say is my, um, my honors thesis in politics as an undergrad um, uh, was about the Venati case. Which, which addressed that question, um, or rather that was its, its hinge point. Um, and, and the Supreme Court had not yet decided it. Um, and uh, they decided, I, it was either 8-0 or 9-0. I feel like maybe one justice didn't participate. Um, they went the other way from my conclusion. So here's your baseline, right? Is that the Supreme Court unanimously said I'm wrong. Um, but, but moving forward, uh, from having read their case and absorbed their reasoning, and then some cases since, ANCSA was the last act of the termination era of federal, federal Indian policy, right? Which hit its, its awful peak in the 50s and maybe the early 60s. And, and to oversimplify it, it was certain tribes, congratulations, you have, sneer quotes, progressed enough that we think you're white. <clears throat> so you're not a tribe anymore. All gone. Here, I'll shake your hand, right? Would it be the final act of colonization? I mean, oh, yeah, 100%. It made 100%. them corporations. They all of a sudden had to become for-profit corporations. So so in, in the terminations, and you can look at the, I mean, the best case study out, studies out there on the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin, um, the, the results of the terminations were, terrible. They were complete, uh, really, divestiture of, of any sort of um, indigeneity in the ownership of the land. Uh, so ANCSA took a slightly different approach, and it was the Western corporate approach. In the decades since, Congress has amended ANCSA many times, and, and thankfully so, and it has shifted the, the Western corporate stockholder model toward, although not all the way to, a self-determination era, which is our current sort of general theory of federal Indian policy um, approach. So now uh, you try, uh, ANCSA corporations can issue new stock. That was originally forbidden, right? Uh, the stock is heritable, uh, which was originally forbidden. Uh, it, it was it originally passed. It had elements of extinguishment over time. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, nowadays it has a very different approach, which is good. Uh, it's still a little weird and very different than the lower 48. Um, so there's one question outstanding today, which is, can the federal government take tribally owned land, not corporation, but tribally owned land back?
back into trust or into trust in the first place, creating a pseudo Indian country, an Indian country like status. And it's a fascinating issue. And the Obama administration went one way on it, and the Trump administration went the other way on it, and the Biden administration hasn't really made their call yet. Ultimately, I think the question will probably end up in the US Supreme Court. I will tell you, you asked about local government. So the Central Council of Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, headquartered here in Juneau, but serving um, the Southeast Alaska indigenous people as their tribal members. Um, they petitioned to have a piece of land here in downtown Juneau put into trust in the, by the federal government. And we worked and talked um, and, and I brought the then mayor and our then city attorney um, into conversations with the tribal president and their tribal council, uh, excuse me, tribal lawyers. Uh, I should use the correct spelling of council there. Uh, and we negotiated the beginnings of a service agreement because there are all these questions, right? Will there be sales tax on a business that's located on your piece of land? City sales tax, will you collect and remit that? You gonna follow our fire code? Yes, no. How about, uh, you gonna have a tribal police department for basically two blocks or are you gonna call JPD? And if so, uh, what's that look like? And so we came to terms on those things, right? Yes, the sales tax, yes, the JPD. Uh, yes, the fire code and thus, fire department coverage and so on, right? Payment in lieu of taxes for the property tax thing, but they had some, some uh, descriptions of that that they negotiated for. And so um, basically two sovereigns as equals got together and came to, I think a really good, obviously I was at the table, I think it was good, a good agreement. With no Uncle Sam at the table. No, and, and it was all pending the, the land trust status, which, hasn't ended up happening. That's all still pending. Um, and so the, the agreement doesn't go into effect because right now it's clearly the city and borough of Juno is the sovereign when it comes to the land. What, so if you compared uh, that one case down in Southeast Alaska to say the other uh, corporations set up by ANCSA, which one has more power on their own? Like which uh, community is more empowered? The, no, they're not the same, right? So the, the Anxa corporations <clears throat> own land in their Western ownership model. Um, and, and they have, they are business entities, right? So most of them make money, some a lot of money, the Arctic Slope Regional Corps in the oil business, right? Um, you know, Doyon and, and Chalista out West uh, with, uh, with the uh, Red Dog Mine. Um, some of them struggle to make money. Um, uh, but tribes are, are a different uh, thing, and they don't necessarily always own land. Not every tribe does. Some are umbrella groups like Clinkett and Haida, that central council of Indian tribes uh, throughout the southeast panhandle, including up to Yakutat. Um, others <clears throat> are village tribal organizations under the Indian Reorganization Act of the 1930s, right? They're IRA councils. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are different layers and different authorities, uh, and it can get confusing. It can get a little weird, but it's worth spending the time on because it pushes, it, no, not pushes, it brings the ability to make decisions and work on issues in ways that are tailored to the folks most affected. So the, the best example I can give you is tribal courts, 
right? Which clearly happened. We had a governor who fought this and wasted a bunch of money on subtle law in the federal courts, got spanked by the judges. Um, tribal courts have the ability to do tribal member divorces and tribal member uh, child custody cases and child support, and that sort of thing. And they have sometimes taken approaches that are culturally tailored and that frankly, a superior court judge sitting in the Juneau courthouse or the Ketchikan courthouse, or the Anchorage courthouses, and you take, it's, yeah. it's not the same model, right? But they can better serve those families. So there's a lot of value here. There's always fear, right? Somebody's always gonna be afraid, well, wait a minute, what if, a, and I'll put, let me get the sneer quotes out again. What if a white person marries a native, right? That's the, that's the, the freak out, right? And who, which kind of court gets to say, can I just, we should work on these issues. We should talk about these issues. There are good answers and there are less good answers, but never let fear drive it, right? Because what people don't say is this unspoken fear is, oh my gosh, what if they, right? There are those sneer quotes again, do it wrong or do it badly or do something unfair. Someday that's gonna happen. Look at our example in the Western court system and judicial system and, and legislatively passed laws as they interpret them. Have we ever done anything unfair? Oh, you bet your sweet bottom dollar, right? So, so there will be problems to correct. There will be things to address. And we have to get there. We should talk about them in the open. Um, there's a lot of fear clouding this issue. Certainly. So, Senator, I only have you for a few more minutes. I want to get to two more questions. Um, this has been a wonderful interview. I love the uh, deep dives we're doing on 70s legislation. But uh, before um, I ask you about uh, the Don Young seat, uh, there's one uh, some, some legislation in Alaska where uh, marriage and performing weddings, this can go back to, you, there's 14 and 15 year olds that can get married. Now, that is just uh, far out. Where does that come from? Does that come from like old Oregon territorial law? I mean, yeah. can we blame Oregon for this? What <laughs> What is the status of uh, fourteen year olds getting married in uh, in Juneau? What What is this oh, law? You are from California. If you're trying to blame Oregon for your problems, um, <clears throat> so uh, it, it it is very old. Um, and, you know, uh, times change, people change, thank God. Um, I, I have a, you know, back in the family tree, there was a 17-year-old who married her Sunday school teacher. He was 47. Nobody blinked an eye. It was Pennsylvania Dutch country in a, pre, in a not the previous, but a previous century, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that, um, so here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to do. Nowadays, 14 and 15 year olds getting married is almost exclusively an attempt to get around um, sexual relationships that would be illegal because we say 14 and 15 year olds cannot consent. They do not have the mental capacity yet to consent to sex with adults. And, 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 and those are good laws. I support those laws, right? And some places they'll call that statutory rape. We call it sexual abuse of a minor in Alaska. Um, same thing. Um, so, but, but if you're married, um, so, so that's a real problem. And the sad fact is, and that, uh, there's always going to be an exception out there, but the sad fact is that 
when this happens, far too often you have situations where there are family problems, there are parents who are not adequately protecting their children. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, there are some really dysfunctional families and households um, in our state, in our country. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do to help everybody get to where they need to get for their children um, and for our future. We're, we're working on that. So um, <clears throat> the, the question becomes, do we move that up as the current bill uh, that's come over from the House to the Senate does to uh, 16 is the bare minimum, no exceptions, or, or older, right? 16 is our age of consent in Alaska. Um, but consent to, uh, to have sex is not the same as consent to marry. Um, so that's the question that we're debating in the Senate. Um, all of this got tacked onto a bill that was about, um, about witnesses for marriages. And uh, we only have one superpower as legislators. We get to perform weddings uh, without filling out any extra paperwork. I've had the, the absolute honor of doing that three times. And it's just, it's just an incredible joy and a privilege to get to do. The other thing that was in that bill originally was we shouldn't uh, make it a sideline business. We shouldn't charge any money, uh, which I never did, right? Um, I asked people to make a donation to charity if they uh, were willing, but that's it, right? And I never took a nickel. Um, this was a great add-on. It happened in the chaos of the House floor. Uh, it's come over to the Senate. Um, and, and I think it's way past time for Alaska to close this, this loophole um, for, for child marriages. Because uh, we've seen the evidence of what happens when they almost inevitably become child divorces, right? And that includes a 15-year-old who got divorced from a 50-year-old. That, that's a problem. It, it, uh, no matter what state you're from, it just is weird. Uh, it's weird that it's still on the books. So, uh, But the final question, and then uh, I know you have to go change the world. But uh, there's 48 people running for this congressional seat that uh, uh, the late Don Young held for nearly 50 years. He was the dean of the House of Representatives, the longest serving. Um, you are the only one in Alaska not running for this seat. So, That's uh, so, so give me the uh, give me the uh, political insider lowdown. Is this who's going to make the top four? Is it going to be Santa Claus? Uh, John Coghill, uh, Sarah Palin, and Al Gross. Um, how do you see this shaking out? The single best thing about this race is that Al Gross has promised he's not going to play his campaign jingle from his uh, U.S. Senate race two years ago. Um, the world is better for that. Uh, no, so, um, you know, the, the pent-up demand from people to serve in Congress uh, uh, with Don Young's passing, and, and he's the only congressman who has ever represented me, uh, and I'm I'm 45. Uh, <laughs> they, they were all waiting their turn to run, I guess. Yeah. So I, I suspect. Uh, so the, and just so your listeners know, right? Uh, we have a vote for one. Everybody's in it on the same single ballot primary. No party splits. None of that. Um, and then the top four vote getters go to uh, the general election, and that's ranked choice. Yeah. So the question, who's the top four, go to rank choice. I, I think that former Governor Palin um, has sufficient following and name recognition that she will likely make that. Um, Santa Claus is, uh, is on the North Pole City Council. Um, he is a nice guy. I know him from my days on the Municipal League Board of Directors. Um, uh, he is much more aligned. Uh, he's probably the farthest left candidate um, in that he is very much uh, sort of a I use the term Bernie Krat. Um, I can tell you that there are a lot of folks who supported Bernie Sanders for president who generally don't vote. 
if they come out in large numbers with 48 candidates on the ballot, Santa will make top form. If they don't, um, he probably won't. I don't Did think most Nick people. Nick the third. He was a. Uh, he's still being talked about as a front runner, even with Palin in the race. And he was running against Don Young from the right before yeah. Congressman Young passed. Yeah. Uh, uh, B3's got a shot. He's been building a network. He's got a lot of money. Uh, he's been building name recognition. People know the Begich name. They associate it with center left. He is definitely the other direction. Um, but, but I think B3's got a solid shot um, at, at being top four. Then you've got really a, a, a significant cadre in there of folks who, if they can get statewide name recognition, they're known in their region, they're known in their specialty, if they can uh, quickly raise the money and build the network, uh, they could be in that top four. Those include my colleague, Senator Josh Revac. They include uh, Tara Sweeney, who uh, just got a number of Native Corp CEOs uh, in her camp, although that's really centered on three or four Native corporations. And the others said, well, we don't, we don't have a horse. We'll just put our names on your thing. Um, that uh, there are some who uh, I think could be surprised people. Jeff Lowenfels is America's longest running garden columnist, but he's also an attorney. He's uh, a former oil and gas exec. He's very much a pro-development guy, he's but not a Trumpist. I I've known him since I was a baby, right? Uh, the first Seder of Passover was by his house with my family for decades. Um, and, and sharp guy, funny guy. And we could go on, right? There are still more. Uh, the joke was, uh, there's really nobody of any prominence at all from Southeast Alaska. If I put my name in, I could have swept the region and made the top four. Now I'd have come in fourth. Um, Mary Peltola is uh, an Alaska native, another Alaska native, uh, former state legislator. She's from Bethel. Um, if she's got chops, if she could raise the money and get the statewide name recognition, she's serious. Um, so, so I, I feel we'll pretty confident. That you know, Gross has the name recognition. Palin has the name recognition. They both got some some cash. Um, B3's got some cash and some name recognition. He's got some net. Santa Santa Claus has some name recognition also. He does. He does. He does. I mean, but but I, I think the question is going to be when people vote. Uh, you know, it's not just name, right? There is. They only were values. holding the election on December twenty fifth, right? Uh, <clears> that, if it wasn't in November, if it was in December. But Senator, I uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, uh, the interview has been great. We got into the PFD. We talked about the budget. Um, so I appreciate your time. I know uh, you can. Uh, you have a busy schedule as a senator. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, thank you once again for listening to Join the Conversation here on KSUA 91.5, our radio station here at UAF. And Senator Keel, thank you for being on the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been great fun. Have a great day, sir. You too. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.